0: Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the BIV newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, understanding the Hong Kong protests, what Canadian businesses need to know. And coming up later, dark web detective and a digital identity guardian to potential jobs in BC's future. I'll explore employment in 2030 with the Brookfield Institute. On September 11th, BIV's Business Excellence Series is back with our Women in Business panel. You can hear from business leaders on the topics of equal pay and how successful women rise through the ranks at work. The event will take place at the Vancouver Club. I'll be moderating and I hope many of you can join us. Visit BIV.com slash B-E-S dash W-I-B for details. And Canada's first year of legalized cannabis has seen significant industrial development and investment. We've also seen a range of regulations imposed around consumer outlets, a supply shortage, and persistent black market challenges that complicate the landscape. What have we learned, and what lessons can be applied to the next stage of legalization? On October 9th, BIV's Cannabis One Year On panel examines industry opportunities and challenges. Our experts will also provide insights on next steps. You can find more information on all of our events at biv.com slash events. We start today's show with our bi-weekly Asia 360 segment, Today, a deeper look at ongoing protests in Hong Kong, which have spilled over international borders into cities such as Vancouver. I have two guests from the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada with me in studio today. Charles Labrec is a research manager with the foundation, and Isaac Lowe is a postgraduate research fellow recently back from Hong Kong. Thank you both for coming on the show. Thank you. Isaac, I want to start with you. You're just in Hong Kong. You said you got back last Friday. Tell me a little bit about what it's like being in Hong Kong right now.
1: Well, uh, as you have seen in the news, the situation is quite tense. Um, Activists and police have um, frequent uh, violent crashes Mm -hmm. on the streets. Um, So you get a sense of uh, sort of a fear, if you will, uh, being out on the streets, especially at night where, you know, most often these crashes uh, did occur. Um, so you see, in, for instance, in restaurants, you see less people than, uh, you know, in popular districts such as Causeway Bay. Uh, and for, but for my district, is mostly, I would say, uh, you know, pretty safe. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, understandable. And Charles, these protests in Hong Kong have been ongoing for months, but more recently we've seen some of those tensions come here to Vancouver. Tell me a little bit about what's happening in Canada with relation to these protests overseas.
2: Well, there's been some, uh, protests happening in Canada in support of the protests happening in uh, Hong Kong. There's been a major one last weekend in Vancouver, both on Saturday and Sunday. There's been protests, uh, in support of the protests in Hong Kong and other cities such as, such, such as Toronto and Montreal, mm-hmm. where there's a large, uh, diaspora from Hong Kong living in those, uh, cities. And there's been also a counter protests, uh, pro, pro-Beijing, pro-China, or pro-police that also happened at the same time. Um, and one of the biggest one, I think, was Saturday. It was just a few streets uh, up here at, uh, at the Broadway uh, Skytrain station.
0: Mm-hmm. It's been interesting to see it happen here. Isaac, we know that these protests were in part sparked by this extradition bill, which now seems indefinitely suspended, but it really does seem like these protests are about much more. Tell me, give me a deeper understanding of what some of these concerns are.
1: Right. So uh, first of all, the protesters are demanding for the full withdrawal of the extradition bill, which is currently suspended. Um, But there are other sort of... Demands uh, from the protesters. And in particular, they were lo- uh, looking, they're seeking for um, the ca- uh, riot characterizations of these protests, uh, amnesty for all arrested protesters, an independent inquiry into the alleged uh, police brutality, and the universal suffrage uh, in elections in both the Hong Kong chief executive, which is the sort of Uh, the mayor of the city, if you will, and the legislative council, the parliament equivalent in Canada.
0: And that last piece that goes back, I think, in part to 2014, when we had that umbrella revolution, again, universal suffrage promised, but I don't know if it's the last minute, there there was a change in terms of policy. Should we consider these protests as a continuation of what happened before? Is there something deeper ongoing? Is this more of a shift that we're seeing?
1: Uh, To some extent, yes. It's a a continuity in terms of supporting for a greater degree of democracy and autonomy in Hong Kong. But also, I think there is a much greater emphasis at this time around uh, the alleged police brutality, which is much more uh, broadcasted or uh, much more out in the public in terms of whether it be on social media platform or be in uh, sort of uh, TV broadcast. So I think that's why that has, you know, um, inspired that many people be out on the streets because they see these sort of images um, in the different media platforms.
0: Mm-hmm. Charles, thinking about Canada, we have many deep cultural, business, trade relations with Hong Kong. What are some of the Canadian implications? What are you hearing from businesses who maybe have operations over there as well as here?
2: Well, um, Hong Kong has always been a... Well, Hong Kong is a business hub and it's always been a gateway or a springboard for many Kenyan businesses uh, that have uh, offices there and that are operating either in China or elsewhere in uh, China. So there is there is an interest uh, for uh, Kenyan businesses and the government that there is no fundamental change in the Hong Kong uh, system. Um, and there's also some really strong people to people ties between Canada and uh, Hong Kong. We often heard that there's, uh, we often hear that there's about uh, 300,000 Canadians uh, living in uh, Hong Kong. So Canada really has an interest in uh, that the situation doesn't escalate too much.
0: Is there pressure imposed on the Canadian government to maybe engage further and, and do something to de-escalate the situation? Have we seen anything like that?
2: Well, there's been, there's been a few statements made by the uh, made by minister Freeland uh, two joint statement with, uh, with a foreign minister from the UK. Um, uh, there's been also other, if I can say maybe smaller statements here and there, uh, the can government change the uh, the, the travel advisory uh, last week. Um, so yeah, so it is. So the government has can express his um, concern about what is going on in Hong Kong right now. But it has also it needs to tread carefully not to uh, not to interfere, not to intercede, and not to uh, promote more uh, the escalation of the protest in um, Hong Kong. So yes, yeah, so there is a pressure that the government uh, kind of speak its mind if I can say on the issue Mm -hmm. but it has to be careful in the statements that it's putting forward as well.
0: I think one of the big questions Isaac is what will these protests achieve if anything and tied to that is how Beijing might respond. Is there pressure on China to actually maybe change some of its influence that it might have in Hong Kong?
1: Interesting question. <laughs> so uh, for China, China's part, uh, if you follow the news closely, uh, it has always been sort of developed a sort of tough narrative mm-hmm. around Hong Kong. Um, such as by urging foreign governments to stop meddling uh, Hong Kong affairs, um, and urging protesters to cease violence if, and that's an understatement, uh, from the Beijing's narrative, right? Uh, and in terms of actual response, China has also stationed, uh, thousands of, uh, people's armed police around Shenzhen, which is an adjacent city, uh, of Hong Kong, um, and they claim that they could reach to the city of Hong Kong within ten minutes, right? Right. So that is a sort of a sort of a tough stance on Hong Kong. But at the same time, uh, the Hong Kong government is also trying to develop a, some sort of uh, conciliatory tone uh, in the in the last week, especially where uh, Car- Chief Executive Carrie Lam uh, has announced to uh, sort of starting the public dialogue, where um, they can sort of negotiate or consult with the public opinion on how Hong Kong can move forward from this incident. Um, so you see that there's definitely pressure on the Chinese side to respond to the ongoing sort of protest in Hong Kong. But at the same time, I think it's... Um, the Hong Kong government has started to... Um, looking for ways to uh, move forward from this protest. And um, I don't think at the moment that the protesters are... Uh, in negotiation mode, uh, if you will, uh, as the invo- uh, the situation is still quite uh, volatile. Mm-hmm. As um, you can see um, yesterday, where there is a sort of um, demonstration around the Yunlong MTR station, a train station in the um, New Territory, um, where the, the protesters are, you know... Uh, <clears throat> Sorry. The protesters are um, asking for the police to... Um, do much more in terms of investigating the Yunlong incident, where um, organized uh, crime, organized organized crime associations were attacking commuters on the Yunlong mm. uh, train station. Right, so you see that uh, sort of um, dynamic still going on. Mm-hmm. Right,
0: Charles. Going back to what you said earlier about Canada's potential role in this and some of the statements we've heard from top officials, I wonder too if there is caution given the state of. Canada-China relations at this point in time, would that be a consideration in terms of how Canada engages or speaks out about this?
2: Yes, Canada is on a thin is on thin ice uh, right now uh, in its relationship with uh, China, and we've seen since um, uh, Minister Fielen's joint statement with uh, UK Foreign Minister last week, um, just a few just a few days ago, Minister Phelan was singled out in Chinese media, and the uh, the the narrative or the tone was to really warn. Uh, Canadians, the Kenyan government not to interfere in uh, the affairs of uh, China.
0: Interesting. We've also seen from state news agencies promoted tweets on Twitter, and that was kind of its whole other side story about how Twitter and Facebook were going to handle that. Interestingly, of course, Twitter not technically available in China. So what do you think the aim is, Isaac? Is China trying to tell the rest of the world its own version of what's going on? Is that the idea? It's trying to save face in some way?
1: You could say that, um, and at the same time, I'm. I, um, these tweets are also tend to trying to divert the narrative away from um, what the state uh, Chinese state media has always accusing Western media have been doing, which is to you know gain dominant side of the narrative and always portraying. Uh, in favor of the protesters side. Right. Mm. Um, and I I see that as a part of the story using Twitter or Facebook accounts to, um, sort of present Beijing side of the story. Um, in fact, I think it was yesterday, a couple news media outlets, such as, uh, the ABC, um, the American broadcast corporations, BBC received uh, a letter from the, um, the foreign affairs ministry in China to um, actually portray a more balanced uh, image of what's going on in the Hong Kong protest. So that's an interesting development. Um, As you see, they're trying to regain the sort of uh, the control over the narrative around uh, what's really happening in Hong Kong.
0: Mm -hmm. I'd like to get both of your thoughts on the following. And that's how do you see this Playing out based on the information we have, what are some of the thoughts around what could happen next, Isaac? I'll start with you.
1: Uh, this it's it's difficult to judge at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that um, you know some analysts are saying the potential crackdown on the Hong Kong protests is possible. Is possible? Um, you know the. P- the People's Armed Police were literally on the border, and they could roll down to the streets of Hong Kong. Um, and that's one scenario. Uh, but the sort of another scenario, it could be that the Hong Kong government basically t- uh, develops some sort of a platform for dialogue, but um, that you know, it consults with the public and trying to portray an image that it's you know consulting you know with the protesters but um the sort of strategic objective was to you know lie down uh, lay down and uh do not instigate and wait till the protest the, the momentum for the protesters to be gone though um this approach obviously hasn't been working so far mm-hmm. as you know there are still many protesters out on the streets um so that's the sort of uh the two scenarios that's um, sort of ongoing. Uh, I, I should also emphasize that the Ch- on, from the Chinese side, they're um, also rolling out plans to have Shenzhen to as a replacement for Hong Kong. Um, so that's a sort of a, a threat, if you will, mm-hmm. or to sort of a, a leverage against the Hong Kong protesters, basically saying, if you don't stop protesting, you know, the the sort of all your financial, like Hong Kong as a financial hub, with the status of Hong Kong being a financial hub would be uh, diminished, right? So that's a sort of um, dynamic that's been going on. And I, I guess I would withhold judgment in terms of, of course. what would actually happen, because it's really difficult to predict at this moment.
0: But it's good to get insight on possible scenarios. Charles, what will you be watching to try and get a sense of how this unfolds?
2: As uh, as Isaac said, it is a moving situation. Um, For the last few weeks, we had seen that the protesters and the police were almost Locked into some kind of fight, some of the protests have turned a little bit more violent. Uh, the response by the police has also been uh, increasing. Um, but uh, we've seen a protest last weekend that was uh, fairly large, that was uh, peaceful. So that could open the way for, as Isaac was saying, some kind of dialogue between the protesters and the government for um, for a to, so so both parties could maybe find a middle ground or a compromise and that could maybe maybe open the way or pave the way for a more uh, peaceful resolution of the situation
0: given some of the uncertainty around this and the gravity around certain events would it be reasonable to expect this year or in the many years ahead, we might see greater immigration from Hong Kong to other places just to try and avoid any potential future conflicts?
2: Mm. Yeah, of course, that's something that is uh, that's entirely possible. Uh, if we are looking at Canada, it is, in fact, uh, a phenomenon that we've been seeing over the last few years when we compare uh, the uh, the people living in Canada uh, that were born in uh, Hong Kong, if we compare the census in 2011 with the census in 2016, mm. there's been an increase and it's the first increase uh, that we've seen since uh, the mid uh, 90s. Uh, we also see that in the number of uh, application for permanent residency from people from uh, Hong Kong. So that number has increased in 2016 and 17 and it wouldn't be surprising if the mo- if that number would also increase in the years ahead, um, and as we talked about a bit earlier on um, there's tr- there's about two hundred thousand uh, passport holders. Uh, in uh, Hong Kong these people have uh, or a lot of these people have some really strong links and ties still to uh, Canada. Uh, if we talk about Vancouver for uh, example, Vancouver is extremely connected with uh, Hong Kong. there's more than 30 direct flights per week between YVR and uh, Hong Kong. So with with the large diaspora that is still here and the strong, Uh, people-to-people ties that uh, we see it is something that would be entirely uh, possible, yes.
0: Isaac, Charles, thank you all so much for coming on the show with your insight on this. Really appreciate it. Thank Thank you. you. That's Charles Lebrec, Research Manager at the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada, and Isaac Lowe, Postgraduate Research Fellow at the Foundation. A dark web detective or digital identity guardian might be job options for prospective employees in BC come 2030. The Brookfield Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship explored what the Canadian employment landscape could look like a decade from now in its new report called Signs of the Times. Diana Rivera is an economist with the Brookfield Institute. She's also the project lead on the Institute's work on employment in 2030. She joins me today on the line from Toronto. Diana, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. I have to say Dark Web Detective sounds like it's straight out of a sci-fi script. Is that actually a possible job option in 10, 11 years from now? Well, our experts definitely seem
3: to think so. Um, so and the way these jobs came about, including you know, Dark Web Detective, was um, in the workshops, we designed an imaginative exploratory exercise with our participants to see how So many of the trends that we're dealing with right now in our current labor market could um, change the labor market and generate new occupations or change them in a really significant way. Uh, So some pretty interesting jobs came out and these were jobs that our participants created out of these possible interactions, out of things that we are seeing right now. How much change do you think we're in for? Um. From what we heard across the country, quite a bit. Um, and I think a lot of that also is up to us to see what, how we react to some of these trends, to some of these changes, uh, and how much we adapt, how much uh, flexibility we offer the labor market in dealing with some of these. But from what we heard across the country, uh, we're in for quite a bit of change.
0: I hesitate to use the word disruptive because I feel like it's used so often, but it really seems like the best word to describe some of these technologies, artificial intelligence being one, automation, robotics being others. How (laughs) prepared do you think we are across Canadian society to implement and adopt some of these systems? How much work needs to be done before we're really AI integrated, as an example?
3: So I think that really depends on what we want and what is optimal across our region. So as you mentioned, across Canada there seem to be a really strong understanding that technology will definitely affect um our the future of work as we know it. It is something that came up in all of our workshops. It is one of the AI everything, as to follow up on the example you gave, is a top trend in all of our workshops. So it is it is something that we definitely see is going to change. But what we did see um, was very different across the six regions we went to was that um that nuance around levels of adoption, around exposure to capabilities, but understanding of where each technology is right now and whether each of the regions can or will adopt it. Um, each region has different barriers, uh, different perception of how it might benefit uh, their population. <clears throat> so it what really became clear through our workshops was that this adoption would be uneven it um it definitely would be something that is that happens in a unique way in each of our regions and something that needs a lot of intentional thought from various sectors so our participants came from the public sector from industry from service provider from service provision organizations, and they all—it—it—it um, it, it really, it, it's really going to need a collaboration out of for all of these actors to see what this adoption means.
0: Those differences are key, and I, it makes me think of our super cluster strategy and how mm-hmm. the strategy is all around diversifying different regions and making them experts in certain kinds of technologies. So. Building on that idea based on perhaps our strengths here in BC, what are some of the tech trends that are most likely to affect us and impact us here?
3: Well, in BC, um, it, we in the workshop that we held in Vancouver, there were three main technological trends that came up out of our rating exercise. So AI everything, as I mentioned, was top as well as in other regions. But the possibility of ARVR being having a big impact across industries also came up in education, in resource management, um, and of course automation. Uh automation was pretty was a pretty interesting conversation in Vancouver because while Some participants felt that, while it was one of those top technological trends, many participants also felt that the potential impacts and this, uh, you know, really big concern that we have around the impacts of automation uh, was a bit overstated and that occupations the occupations most likely to be impacted, so for example, mining is is a frequent example, have already been affected. Um, and in certain occupations, it can be rather expensive to adopt new technology, or it's just not feasible because of connectivity issues. Um, so it was it was a an interesting nuance to say yes, it is going for participants to say yes, it is going to be important. It, it is one of the trends that we're citing as having um a really important impact. However, it's it's a bit overstated and we need to we need to see in a nuanced way really what this is going to mean for a labor market.
0: That's a really interesting distinction. I started the conversation off with one of the more popular job descriptions or options mm-hmm. that might come to us. What are some of the more realistic right. ones that have been identified in the report?
3: Sure. So um, realistic is is um, a really interesting um, way to put it um, because Dark Web Detective was definitely one of the more um, imaginative ones. However, we we also asked participants to distinguish between jobs, you know, that could be probable or their favorite jobs for other reasons. And some of the ones that we saw were, especially for Vancouver, was, for example, a gig administrator. Mm. So the... The quick tag for that would be providing administrative support for multiple gig workers, but also maybe acting as a bit of an agent uh, to li- liaise between um, the worker and the client, or the platform, or um, the other any other relation work relationships that might arise. Um, and that seemed to in, with the you know rise of gig work um, that seemed to be. Something that participants really thought would um, be quite probable. Hmm. A couple of others um, include AI rights lawyers. So, with you know, as you mentioned before, with AI integration and accountability being a hot topic right now, that's um, support legal support focusing and having expertise on that is really going to be important according to you know some of the discussions of our participants. Um and one more that I found quite interesting um is personal health navigators. So supporting these these workers would support people in understanding their personal health data. Now that doesn't necessarily mean only things like X-rays or ultrasounds, which usually only um, you know doctors would have access to, but also uh, information and data from wearables that we're increasingly using as a society to track our own health um, and our own level of activity. So someone uh, who could merge those two sources of information and um, give you a more uh, give you a bit of a roadmap to navigate your own health information uh, was also an interesting one.
0: In terms of the skill sets needed to hold one of these jobs successfully, Mm -hmm. do you think there are individuals already in the economy who have those skills and they would just be applying it in a different position? Or is there a bit of a skills gap before we can really embrace some of these new roles?
3: So that's something that we're really looking to find out in our uh, final report. So Mm -hmm. with our skills-driven forecast and where we do aim to look at you know an employment forecast that is driven by the skills within each of these occupations um and then looking at where you know if an occupation is in is um, expected to grow, for example, what skills does it need, and do we have them right now but um that's that's forthcoming and <laughs> this in this report is really about what we observed um, during our workshops and what our current labor market experts think about the labor market. Um, although of course, they um, they also had a lot to say about the skills and uh, just from a more qualitative observational view absolutely there, you know, there are going to be skills that we're going to need to nurture to keep up with these changes.
0: Well, we'll have to have you back, Diana, when that final report is out. But for now, thanks so much for coming on the show. I hope to be back. Thank you for having me. That's Diana Rivera. She's an economist as well as the project lead on employment in 2030 with the Brookfield Institute. The report is called Signs of the Times, Expert Insights about Employment in 2030. It's available and definitely worth a read over at the thebrookfieldinstitute.ca. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes or Stitcher. All of our episodes are also available at BIV.com slash audio. For more business news, visit BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening.